your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, alongside us. Today's guest, a friend of the show, Carlos Colazzo. We love talking to Carlos around this time every year to preview the draft and also get an update on the Chicago White Sox farm system. Carlos Colazzo, Baseball America, can be followed on Twitter at Carlos A. Colazzo. He's also a host with Ben Badler on the Future Projection Podcast. Carlos, we actually just got done talking to Ben Badler a couple of weeks ago. And we were crediting you guys for the the nonstop coverage and the hard work, especially on the Future Projection podcast, because it really does come through on those episodes. Uh, James turned me on to that show and looking at just the podcast length itself per episode. There's so much information packed. So we really appreciate all the hard work that you and Ben and everybody at Baseball America does uh, for us, the baseball fan. And we really appreciate you having the time for us today because we want to talk White Sox draft and White Sox prospects. So welcome back, Carlos. Thank you. I want to get right into it because Noah Schultz is a big deal. And it was kind of a pick that took us aback at the time. But now that we're recognizing the talent clearly and seeing some video of him working out and throwing and getting the reports, we're excited. How do you feel about Noah Schultz now versus when the White Sox took them in 2022? Yeah, I think my opinion on Noah Schultz now compared to at the time of the draft is probably pretty similar. I mean, as we record this podcast, he hasn't um, thrown in a live game in 2023, uh, depending on when when this releases, uh, probably have had his first start in the rearview mirror and maybe we can see what he looks like. But I think um, me, both me and Ben, I think we talked about this on our, our podcast, are just very high on Schultz in general. I think it's a really high upside pick. Um, I remember at the time hearing a lot of buzz about the White Sox just looking for arms uh, with that pick. I didn't necessarily know it would be Schultz specifically, but at least earlier in the year, that spring, uh, there was some really loud feedback. He came out throwing a harder fastball. There was a lot more velocity. And when you pair that velocity with his feel for spin, his advanced body control, his size, the low slot and the left-handedness, uh, there was a lot to like. I think if he was healthy the full spring and continued performing like he did early in the year, uh, there's a chance he didn't make it to 26. We were getting some early mid mid first round buzz on Schultz that kind of faded towards the the end of the draft and as it got closer. Um, but I really like when teams go for high upside picks that maybe have a little a little more risk than some of the safer demographics. And I think Schultz um, probably solidly fits into that. And and I think he's just. Uh, a really special talent. I'm excited to see what he does this year in 2023. Yeah, we are too. And the length and obviously the fact that he can get it out there. I just feel like he he cuts down the distance to home plate so well with his extension. And it's a little bit different of a development path for a guy like Noah Schultz coming out of high school versus those coming out of college. And thinking about the White Sox long-term plans for the rotation and also bolstering just organizational depth on the pitching side, we're thinking about the way and, and monitoring the way Mike Shirley is approaching each draft. And he has insulated some of the White Sox pitching staffs across their affiliates with college arms. And 
With that being said, given where the White Sox stand in their development, how would you evaluate the way they're trying to maybe add college pitchers who can have a quick trajectory to the big leagues versus those like Noah Schultz and some other prep arms in the past who take a little bit of time to develop? Yeah, they've definitely been a pitcher-heavy organization over the last three drafts or so. I mean, uh, there are a few interesting hitters that they took early on in a couple drafts, but for the most part, if you look at their draft classes, it's especially in the top 10 rounds, it's a significant amount of arms. I think they have a lot of really solid pitching depth in the organization right now, and you're basically just waiting for guys to take steps forward, get healthy, uh, perform. There are a couple interesting performing arms in the system this year who, who have been impressive just in terms of the results. Um, but I like a lot of the arms they take. And I think in general, the strategy of taking college pitchers later in the draft could could be a pretty solid one. We see year in and year out, it seems like there are teams who are taking these really advanced strike-throwing college pitchers and adding more stuff in the future. Um, Tanner Bybee, Spencer Strider, uh, Brandon Fatt. Those are guys who are taken like after the fourth round. They get into organizations that do a good job developing pitching talent and all of a sudden you've got impact arms that you didn't have to use top two round draft capital. I think that's a pretty good strategy. And I think in general in the college game, like the elite bats go very quickly, the elite high school talents go quickly, but there's always like a really impressive depth of college arms. And it just depends on the organization philosophy, what you think you can develop. Can you develop um, velocity? Are you good at helping pitchers improve a breaking ball? Are you good at helping pitchers refine their control? Like depending on what you think you're good at and what you think you can develop, I think there's a lot of value to be had with that specific demographic later in the draft. So Carlos, I want to take you back just to, you know, last year's draft. And, you know, we had a lot of rumors and information that we had about the White Sox. So just going back to Noah Schultz a little bit, like I knew that they were interested in him. I just, were you surprised, I guess, that he even went or were you under the assumption that he might sign? Because I just, you know, like I just assumed that it was like an asking price of over $3 million and the White Sox weren't going to overslot him. So then once they did it, we were like on a live draft show and he took slot and which I assumed, you know, once they took him, like, you know, he's signing, obviously. I just, that whole pro, I just like had a tough time reading his whole process last year because he seemed like a guy that might be headed to school, but then he was pitching in like a local college league here and guys don't mm -hmm. typically do that. So I guess just like what I, when the pick was made or I guess like that morning, like did you think like Noah Schultz was going to become a professional baseball player? Yeah, I mean, he was always talented enough to go in a range where he should have been signable. I mean, it is not uh, uncommon for Vanderbilt prospects to – have a high signing ask or be perceived as a tough sign. And I think that was the case for Schultz throughout the whole spring. But I think it's different if you're a tough sign and you're being viewed as a top 50 talent in the class versus if you're a tough sign and teams don't really want to touch you until maybe after the top 100. That's when a lot of these high school players is like, okay, uh, I'm not going to sign for 750,000, 500,000, whatever the price is. But once you get over that million dollar mark, I feel like, you're going to sign a lot of the high school players in that range. I mean, it was always just a matter of like where he's actually going to go on the board. If someone's going to take him the first, like, as you guys know, like when, once the pick's made, you kind of assume that the teams have done their due diligence and done their homework. Um, there are a few notable exceptions to that in the, in recent years where teams maybe were a little aggressive on pulling the trigger on guys without getting that signability figured up. But I don't think he was ever a guy who I was like, oh, he's definitely going to school. It was just a matter of like, where was the, the team highest on him going to pop him? 
and after that, like, yeah, it was, it was pretty much, it wasn't a lock, but as close to a lock as you can get in the draft. So after they made, you know, kind of a high upside swing, I would say like they, you know, they, they follow it up with Peyton Paulette, who I think it's well-documented taking a gamble there on a guy that should have went a lot higher, you know, had he not been hurt. And then even Jonathan Cannon, a guy that I know you like, and then even like if you like Tyler Schweitzer too, I guess just kind of insulating that first pick with college arms. What do you think about the strategy in general? And then I mm-hmm. guess just your thoughts on Cannon. I, I know you're a you're a fan. I listened to the pod and, and heard you <laughs> talking about him. So Yeah, big Jonathan Cannon fan. Uh, in terms of kind of creating some diversity to the portfolio in terms of just risk um, tolerance that, that you're taking on with college versus high school arms, I think it's solid. I, I think in general, you should just be taking the best talents regardless. Uh, so if, if you think that Pallet and Cannon and Schweitzer, those picks are the best picks, then that's fine. I don't really care too much about balancing it out. I guess it's nice, um, depending on like your org needs. Maybe you need some guys at the upper levels quicker. I don't think you need to get too crazy in, in kind of analyzing the strategy there. But in terms of the arms, I think they got good value. Like you said, Payne Pellet, if he was healthy, he would have gone significantly higher. We had him entering the year as... Uh, one of the top college arms in the class. The stuff is really impressive. It's it's swing and miss stuff when he's healthy. Um, this year it's been solid stuff. I think there, the question with him is just going to be durability and obviously coming back from the injury. Like, can he get fully back to what he was? But it's elite field to spin the baseball. Uh, it's a fastball that gets a lot of misses. Um, so I like that pick. I love Jonathan Cannon. I, I'm probably one of the higher people on Cannon. Personally, he does not have the sort of fastball life that is really popular these days. It's not a high carry fastball that's going to miss a lot of bats up in the zone. But I think everything else that he does, I, I just think he's a really advanced pitcher with a deep pitch mix, with a great frame, with a great delivery, good feel for throwing strikes. I don't necessarily think you have to have a, this high carry fa- forcing fastball to have success. And so far this year, Cannon has been impressive. Uh, I'll be curious to see how many bats he continues to miss or how much he's able to just continue to induce weak contact at the next level. Um, but he's experimented with a few breaking balls that have some potential. He's worked with a cutter. That sounds good. Getting some good feedback from scouts. But when I watch Jonathan Cannon pitch, I just feel like he, he's a, just an advanced pitcher and I believe he's going to get the absolute most out of his stuff. And and I'm all for having more unique profiles and diverse profiles, having success in the big league. So I hope he, I hope it succeeds and becomes that solid back-end starter that I think he's got a chance to be. Carlos, when you look at the 2022 draft, sticking to that conversation here, any other players that stick out to you? We're excited about Jordan Sprinkle's athleticism, waiting for the bat to come around, Tyler Schweitzer, left-handed pitcher. So far, so good, in our opinion. And, And Jacob Burke, another name, just for example. What's your opinion on some of the names in the 2022 White Sox draft? Yeah, there's some interesting names. I think, I mean, Tim Elko is a guy who's not a very prominent name, 10th round draftee, signed for very, very little dollars, but he's been hitting still. And I guess he's a guy who's always just continued to hit. So maybe he's one of those profiles that just kind of sneaks under the radar. And if you keep hitting, there's going to be a spot for you. Uh, Another guy who's been impressive, at least early on, is Shane Murphy, left-handed pitcher out of uh, junior college. He was a 14th round draftee. Uh, this is a guy who does have that fastball life that it seems like everyone is really excited about these days. It's it's good carry. It's not the most massive velocity, but the shape of the pitches is impressive. Um, the secondaries, I think they probably could be sharpened up. But so far, again, he's pitched pretty well just in, in terms of the results. So that's a name that's intriguing to me. If you can add a little bit more velocity, I think you have a pretty solid foundation of intriguing starter just to add even more pitching depth to this system. 
Um, again, see what he does in a few years, but that's one that jumps out. Um, Sprinkle is solid. Yeah, I am kind of with you. There's some hesitance here about what sort of impact we're looking for offensively. He is a very impressive defender, always has been. Yeah, so I guess how high you are on him just depends on like what you think he can unlock offensively. Um, but it's an it's a solid like up the middle premium defensive position college player who there, I mean, there's a chance that he he figures something out offensively. But I don't know that I'm like super high on his upside at this point. And when it comes to Mike Shirley, so how how would you evaluate the way he's gone about taking over the position as scouting director, leading the draft, and and adding all the talent that he has across the three years. I know 2020 was bizarre with the five-round draft, but he's essentially attacked almost every demographic in the first round, going college arm, uh, high school arm, and high school position player. What do you think of the job that Mike Shirley's done with the White Sox so far? Yeah, I mean, he did a good job with Garrett Crochet. Obviously, he's a really successful pick in 2020. That draft class is looking really tough for the first round in general. So the fact that you have a big leaguer there, I think is a big win. Um, Jared Kelly is a, is a tricky demographic in general. I think I'm just kind of lower on that hard throwing high school pitcher demographic now, just because of so many of those players that have come through and just not performed um, or lived up to expectations. Colson Montgomery, uh, again, seems like a really strong pick there dealing with some injuries now, but when he's been healthy, he's looks like one of the best hitting prospects in the game. I, I think I, I would, I would be curious to see like what they're going to do offensively in this year's draft, just because it, it does seem like he's done a really good job of layering on a ton of pitching depth. Once you get past Montgomery on the offensive side, I don't know who you're looking at um, in this system in, in terms of bats that you're excited about. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why we have the White Sox ranked lower in our, in our organizational talent rankings at this point. So I think they have an opportunity to infuse some really really exciting offensive talent in this year's draft class, just based on the class itself and where they're picking within it. Um, they haven't taken a college hitter very high up, and I wonder if that'll change this year. Yeah, so that's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, it's the one demographic he hasn't done. Like, I, I don't know that there's any necessary reason for it, right? I mean, I think it's, yeah. it's really easy for us to say, like, you should take the best player on the board that's signable, you know, and the rest of your class kind of factors in. But, like, yeah. do you kind of consider them a true wild card at this point? Like, you're going to do a mock draft and you're at 15. I mean, you know, there's some teams that just, hey, this is a team that, that takes prep hitters all the time, right, or whatever. Like, I feel like right now the White Sox aren't really like that. They could almost take anything. Yeah, I agree. I think it probably is not a good sign if you are a team that is like that. Like if you're like, oh, I'm just taking this demographic, but I don't think that is like a good indication of a solid process just because you want to see how the board unfolds in front of you. I think at this point in the calendar, everyone who's picking outside of the top 10 should be a wild card. Like there is a big second tier of players that is very similar in terms of how the industry is viewing them. I've been talking to scouts over the last few weeks just in general reporting mock draft reporting and, and people think that it's going to be all over the place once the kind of elite top tier of five players is off the board and so teams are having to cast a very wide net in terms of the players they're looking at um, there are a lot of players linked with a lot of teams just because you need to have that coverage um, so i don't know that you can necessarily tie them to a specific demographic i think maybe probably easier to see a hitter just because unless some of these high school pitchers um, fall down the board, like if a Noble Meyer or Thomas White are available at 15, I think both those players make sense 
on talent. Uh, I think on the college pitching front, Herson Waldrop is maybe the only name that that seems likely to be on the board somewhere around this range. Um, there's an elite kind of college tier that that should be off the board in front of them, and then there's a gap once you get past Waldrop where I think that probably just aren't targeting that demographic for a few more picks. So tons of hitters should probably be linked to the White Sox and have been linked to the White Sox. There are a lot of college players here. There are a lot of high school infielders in this range as well. So yeah, I think there's a number of different directions they can go. I think they don't know what direction they're going because the teams in front of them don't know what direction they're going. So it's kind of just making sure all your bases are covered, making sure you're uh, tracking down players that that you think have a chance or that you like. And, and so far, that's still a pretty big pool of players. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think I'll stay just White Sox here before I want to just do some draft overall. You know, I, I would say like they've I've heard them link to some prep guys, I think, as others that kind of do what you do probably have. But I mean, look, it is a scenario where like, you know, one of these college guys like falls to 15, like it, it could be like an easy pick for them. But a couple of those those prep guys, Colin uh, is it Hauk or Hoke? Colin Hoke. Colin of, Hauk, yeah. Yeah, of Georgia. And then Blake Mitchell, they've been tied to out yeah. of Texas. And then even Aiden Miller, I guess. Can you just like kind of briefly talk about those guys and maybe the differences? And then I guess like who's mm-hmm. who's the most likely to get to 15 of those guys? I guess. <laughs> Man, it wouldn't surprise me if literally every single one of those players were available at 15. I mean, Blake Mitchell has gotten some buzz in the top 15. I expect him to go at this point somewhere in the 10 to 20 range is where he's getting a lot of heat. Um, Colin Houck, similar. He gets like there's a chance that Colin Houck or Arjun Amala, another prep shortstop, go in the top like 12 picks or so. I think some teams are really excited about him. But uh, Aiden Miller, another one kind of middle of the first round is most of the buzz. So, I mean, all these guys are right in, in the range where the White Sox are picking. In terms of who they are as as players, we, we view them all as like legitimate first rounders. Blake Mitchell is the best high school catcher in the class. It's a really special tool set, big physical hitter uh, with a lot of power from the left side. He's got a cannon arm from behind the plate. Uh, I think good defensive actions as well, has a chance to be a solid defender at the position. He's also would, would be a solid pitching prospect in his own right. That, that arm translates to the mound. He throws really hard. It's more raw on the mound. And I think he's definitely a hitting prospect first at the next level, just given the position that he plays and the power that he can provide as a left-handed hitter there. And he's just gotten fantastic feedback this spring. It seems like everyone who's gone in to see him has been really impressed with just the hitting ability. Um, I know there are some questions about swing and miss with him last summer, uh, but it sounds like it's been nothing but positive this spring. Colin Houck, the shortstop from, from Georgia, is one of my personal favorite players in the class. I think he just has a really well-rounded game with a solid athletic foundation it's a chance for 50 55 tools across the board i think um he's a multi-sport athlete played football so he doesn't have as many plate appearances under his belt as some of these other um really highly touted high school hitters but it's an advanced approach at the plate there are bat to ball skills there's impact there i don't think he's going to be a massive home run hitter but it's a chance for 50 55 power uh, I love the way he moves in the field. Even if he's not a shortstop, I think he will probably turn into a really good third baseman if he gets a little too big and has to move. Uh, it's good arm strength. So I just think it's a well-rounded profile. There are not a lot of holes in the game that I see, um, and I've just seen him perform in person so often that I'm really in on the hit tool there. And, and then with Aiden Miller, I think he entered this spring. Aiden Miller's a Florida third baseman. I think he entered the spring as – 
like regarded as one of the best hitting and power combination high school players in the class. Uh, it's electric bat speed. He has a track record of hitting some of the best pitching in the class. He is a very strong physical kid who's going to have power. Um, probably a third baseman at the next level. He's got the arm strength. He needs to refine some of the actions, um, the footwork a little bit, but I think he's got the tools to be a third baseman. The, the tricky thing with him is he was injured for a lot of the season, and so that um, limited the looks that teams were able to get on him. I think if he was healthy, we might be talking about him inside the top 10. Uh, the fact that he didn't play as much clouded his stock a little bit and just makes him a little bit trickier to figure out. But in terms of offensive upside, I think he is, once you get past like Walker Jenkins and Max Clark at the top of the class, like he would be one of the first names you pointed to. There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed. And that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash sports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash sports. That's Indeed.com slash sports. And support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash sports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. A lot of really good information, and we'll get back to more probably White Sox-specific stuff as, as well as the top prospects that we're looking forward to in the draft class. I just kind of want to take the conversation here real quick, Carlos, because you know, we saw for the first time the the draft lottery in Major League Baseball last year, and for whatever reason, the Twins are picking fifth after having, what, less than a 2% chance to get to that spot? What, what's your thoughts on the way that the draft lottery took place last year, the concept of it, and just overall how it played out? Yeah, it's a big win for the Twins. Maybe not so excited if you're uh, an A's fan or a Reds fan. Uh, I think the A's had, uh, like, top three, chance for top three, and they're picking at six. And it seems like the, the talent cutoff this year for the top tier is at five, so you really – Hate that if you're an A's fan. It's been a lot of bad news for the A's over the past six months, year. I mean, maybe even longer, depending <laughs> depending on how you view things. Uh, but no, I think the draft lottery is interesting. I'm curious what you guys think. But for me, I think it adds some excitement to the the draft process, which on the baseball side, I think sometimes can lack that. I I like the idea of trying to trying to make tanking a less viable strategy. Um, because it has been such a, a viable strategy for teams in the past. Like there's a lot of success you can have by just bottoming out, picking at the very top of a draft class, getting a lot of elite talents, reloading, uh, and boom, you're competitive again. I, I don't know if that's great if every team that's not competitive just thinks tanking is a better solution than actually just trying to be competitive. So if it's able to prevent that, I think it's good. I think it's exciting. Uh, I actually like how it shuffles the order for the playoff teams as well, just beyond the draft lottery now. So I think if nothing else, it's fun to watch and it's exciting for, for fans of teams who are involved that maybe you get a higher pick. Um, potentially, if you're a, a fan of a team that is tanking right now, maybe you're not a fan, but I like it generally, but I'm curious what you guys think. 
Well, so I'll say like as a as a White Sox fan, like this year, I think it's interesting because like, you know, like the team isn't very good and they could be headed towards like selling. Mm-hmm. And the thing for me is with like the odds at the top, like you really need to be bottom three. Like I've talked to people and it's like, oh, you know, the White Sox are going to get the number one pick or whatever, like just jokingly. And it's like, well, they're not going to catch Oakland. Well, they don't need to. Like you just need a bottom three record to yep. have good odds. You know what I mean? So that part of it I think is cool. I do agree with you about the tanking part. The thing that I find the most interesting is I guess like looking at it going forward, right? Like a team like the nationals, like with all the rules where like the big market clubs can't pick in the top six, like for like a bunch of years in a row, like how much is that going to change the strategy for teams? Like, are they going to try to not be as bad for as long because you're not going to be able to pick that high anyway? Like I just like some of the, that collateral damage and those things, I don't think we're going to know for like a couple of years because there's only been one lottery, but that's one of the things that I'll be paying attention to. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be interesting to see how it pans out because again, if it does, if it incentivizes teams like a Washington to just try more because the value of being bad has just been taken away a little bit. Like, I think that's a good thing in general. So um, we'll see what happens, but at, at the very least, it's something else on the calendar for the draft that is fun to watch. So I do wish it was sooner though. Like waiting that long for the lottery kind of was not great last year, at least for me. <laughs> I was like, I mean, baseball should just put the show on like a Thursday night when there's no game, like maybe during the playoffs or something. So you don't have to wait till the winter meetings, but you know, I don't I mean, mind it. We're all gonna meetings. watch like, regardless. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like there's the, there's really not a lot that happens at the winter meetings these days. Like I guess the winter meetings used to be a lot of fun during hot stove season, but it seems like it's m- more of a snooze fest uh, now than anything. So yeah, I'm with you there. Uh, interesting because I, I always think about the NBA and I guess how you can have more of an immediate impact on your ball club in the NBA versus baseball based on roster size, but. The A's are making it look pretty damn easy to lose purposefully in Major League Baseball. So I'd like to see one more year of the draft lottery, and then I'm going to buy in, Mm -hmm. but we'll see one more year. Carlos, (laughs) I want to take you back to the 2023 conversation here, the draft, as we look ahead to, I guess, the top five. We're trying to figure it out. Is there a top five consensus forming here? And, I mean, looking at Dylan Cruz's numbers right now, He's got a 1277 OPS. I mean, is is there any way Pittsburgh doesn't take this kid at one? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's Pittsburgh. So I think they are more willing to be creative at the top of the draft. I think there is a top five forming. I think it's probably been formed for a few months now, and it's really been solidified lately. Like every time we ask for feedback, the same five names are the names who come up at the top. That's the Louisiana State duo of Dylan Cruz, who we have one, Paul Skeens, who we have number two. Then after that, you have Florida outfielder Wyatt Langford, and then you have the two high school outfielders of Walker Jenkins, North Carolina, and Max Clark out of Indiana. Um, I do think Dylan Cruz is the best player in the class. I think he is the best college or the best position player since Adley Rutschman. I think he belongs in that tier of prospect if you wanted to give Adley the edge because he's a great catcher. I think that's fine, but I think Dylan Cruz is, is near that tier or solidly within that tier. The the thing that's interesting about this year's draft class is Paul Skeens is definitely the best college pitcher since Steven Strasburg. And the fact that you have two of these like quasi-generational talents at the top of the draft class really makes things interesting. And I think you can get into some interesting like philosophical conversations about the pros and cons of either one and like which player might make sense for different organizations. 
But even after that Louisiana State duo, who has a chance to to make draft history as the first one-two teammate duo ever, I think Wyatt Langford, Walker Jenkins, and Max Clark in an average year would all be one-one caliber talents. I think if if we're looking at some like financial games being played at one, uh, it's not the same as 2021 when the Pirates took Henry Davis because I think that year there was really like no great feeling for like a consensus top talent this year. I think there's a little bit more uh, of an order, but I mean, Walker Jenkins is a really impressive high school hitter with elite power potential, great body, great hitting ability. I know they've been scouting him hard. So if there's like a $2 million gap in the signability numbers for Jenkins and Cruz, which I don't know if that's the case, I'm just kind of spitballing here and thinking it through like, it wouldn't shock me if Pittsburgh was like, you know what, like we're going to take a guy who we view as a comparable talent and like 2021, we're going to be able to get some really elite high school players with later picks because it's also a very deep draft class in my mind. So if you think that's going to give you a competitive advantage and you think the the, the total pool of talent you're getting is, is better by that route, I can't fault you for it. If I was picking one, I would just take Dylan Cruz, uh, make it really easy and, and move on with my day. But I don't think we can count out the Pittsburgh Pirates doing something uh, – a little bit unique up top. No, I definitely agree. I mean, as soon as I saw the bonus pool amounts, Carlos, I was like, look, in the baseball draft, like it, I know we don't always love like talking about the money portion of it, but it, it's a factor. Cause like with, you know, if he's Boris representation, I just kind of feel like if the pirates take Cruz at one, it's like, is it that full 9.7? And if it is, I just, you know, I, I would kind of bet against them doing that. And we've seen rumors of Max Clark being the cut option or whatever. And look, I mean, I think anybody's probably over $8 million at that point. My question, I guess, just with Pittsburgh, like their second pick is like 42, I believe. It makes more sense to me, like if they had a pick in the 30s, right? Like if you had a pick in the 30s and you cut money, then you could push like a top 15 player there potentially. Mm -hmm. 42 is kind of a long way to wait for like your next guy almost, I would think. It is, and you also have a team like the Mariners who have three picks from in between 20 and like 33 in that range with a huge bonus pool. You've got other teams with multiple picks in between you, so it's risky. I think that's why I don't like that strategy in general is just because it's it's risky overall, um, and trying to float guys down is a challenge, and I'm, I'm just a fan of the just take the best player available philosophy. You don't pick at the very top of the draft often, and when you do, it doesn't always end up with a draft class uh, with a truly elite talent, um, and this year it seems like there are multiple of those, so I would take one of the guys at, at the top I would take a cruiser skeins if I was picking one. And I think just with how we view the risk of pitching prospects in general, just the attrition risk, um, Cruz just seems like the safest possible bet that also has just massive upside and could potentially be like a franchise player for your organization. Yeah. So you, I mean, you kind of alluded to it earlier and you just talked about it. So your thoughts, I guess, on the philosophy of drafting a talent like Paul Skeens over a similarly ranked position player. And then I guess just like the prevalence in the league over it, right? Like, I guess there's probably teams in the top five that would have no issues taking Paul Skeens, but there are some that would prefer a position player. Like if somebody thinks Wyatt Lankford, you know, and obviously we didn't get to see him in center this year, but I mean, you know, if somebody thinks he's one, a to Cruz or even better than Cruz, like I could totally see you know, one of these front offices just deciding to pass on the pitcher just because he's a pitcher. Mm -hmm. And, but I mean, with a yeah. guy as, with a guy as good as Skeens, it, it, you know, those, those guys are tough to find, man. It's tough to pass on. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think you can make a very easy argument that the player with the highest upside in this draft class is Paul Skeens. Like I've I've had it made to me by scouts. I know JJ Cooper at Baseball America. If he was picking one for a team, he would take Skeens just because he thinks the upside is just ridiculous and. You also can just point to the fact that like, it's very, very hard to get an ace pitcher. It's maybe the hardest role to fill in your organization. And additionally, you have the factor of if you're a small market team and you don't think you can be competitive to acquire those players on the free agent market, you're not going to get a better value in terms of talent and acquisition costs than going for Paul Skeens at the top of the draft. If, if you legitimately think he's an ace caliber pitcher, which I believe he is, um, that's a pretty great value and you're not going to get a one or two on the free agent market based on how the pirates have operated in the past and just their willingness to spend money. Um, I think if, if both these players reach their like 99th percentile outcomes, Skeens is probably the more impactful player. For me, it just comes down to there are so many more exit ramps in terms of prospect status, um, stuff backing up, injury, uh, concerns uh, and just the attrition risk in general with pitchers. If you look at our top tens on the top 100 um, over the, the history, it's it's not great for that group. Um, just pitchers in general at the top of the draft, I think it's it's less impressive than some of the hitters. So for me, I just think the the relative safety, while still believing that Dylan Cruz is an all-star caliber player, leads me to Cruz. But if you made the if you wanted to tell me Paul Skeens is the guy, like I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Always really enjoy talking to you, Carlos. Thanks so much for your time. Last one for me. Got to ask all the evaluators about Dylan Head, local product. And over mm-hmm. time, it seems like the more I talk to people, as we get closer to the draft, it seems like he's getting higher and higher in the draft, um, at least in, in terms of where he's projected. Curious mm-hmm. your scouting report on Dylan Head. I mean, is 15 unrealistic for the White Sox to take a chance on a player like him? Where do you think he falls and how would you evaluate mm-hmm. him to this point? Yeah, I think that he's he's got a lot of buzz to get into the first round. It's mostly been back of the first round buzz, but we've seen players who are further off the board go higher than um, 15 in the past. So at this point, I, I don't think I'm ever shocked with anything that happens in the draft just because I feel like we hear the same stuff leading up to the draft over and over and over again, and we kind of convince ourselves that we, we have an idea of what's going to happen, but we don't ever really know. And I think he's solidly within the tier of players um, and included in a really deep high school class here in kind of the like 20s to really 50 overall that you can get really excited about. Dylan Head specifically is like a 70 grade runner, really impressive quick twitch athlete. Uh, It's more bat to ball skills and kind of a line drive offensive approach now. Um, There are questions of impact, but he's a no doubt center fielder at the next level. I think he's got a chance to be a plus or better defender, um, elite runner who should be able to just be a pest on the bases. I think his offensive approach is a little bit pesty as well. And I think while he has some like power concerns, there's a chance that he gets to like below average power um, or at least as a threat to, to leave the park. I don't think it's going to be nothing. There are some players in this class that that have more power questions than I would have with Dylan Head. So if you believe in the hit tool, um, you could go worse than a 70-grade runner who's going to definitely be in center field. He's he's a really exciting player. I think he's probably the second best or the, the the best high school outfielder after our like elite duo of of White Link, oh, excuse me, Walker Jenkins and Max Clark. Yeah, so I you know just a question then for you on that. Like obviously, like I don't think the White Sox would necessarily like do it at 
at 15 necessarily, but I've, I've heard some of your concerns on Enrique Bradfield and just the profile in general. And I, you know, I generally agree, like he's not an all run guy. Right. But like the, especially like me and Mike looking at this from like a white Sox lens, like they are not an organization that I think like maximizes whatever his power tool ends up being, you know, whether it's 40 or, or what, you know, like, how do you compare like would you rather like say you're in the mid-teens or whatever like would you rather pay Enrique Bradfield like a slot amount there or do you just take a chance on the the younger player like Dylan Head you know you get three you get three years extra you know of like Dylan Head like with him be I just kind of think like that's a gamble that I I just like rather go younger than than do something like that there yeah, I think, I mean, for me, I think most people at Baseball America, we just have a, a, a skepticism of Bradfield's profile that I don't necessarily know that the industry shares. And so I think that we're probably personally lower on Bradfield than where he's going to wind up on our list, which is an attempt to reflect the industry's consensus. For me, it comes down to like, I think Dylan has a chance to be a more complete offensive player offensively. And at the same stage in their high school careers, I think Dylan is the better prospect. We had Enrique Bradfield as like a top three or like a second to third round talent coming out of high school. Um, and he went to college and was kind of the exact player everyone expected him to be. I think if Dylan Head went to college um, and performed for three years, we'd be talking about him in just a different lens than we talk about Enrique Bradfield. Um, and there certainly is some hesitance of just questioning the impact with Bradfield. Most of the first round outfielders out of college have significantly more impact. And I think if you're picking 15, like I would be, I would prefer to try and go for a little bit more upside, a little bit more impact, a little more umph. Um, but at the same time, Enrique Bradfield is an 80 defender and he is an 80 runner. And that profile in general in the game, it seems like is becoming a more viable path to playing time just with the rule changes we have. He does have good bats of ball skills he hits the ball a little harder than you probably expect him to. So like, I, I see why people like him. I would just probably not be the, the high man on Bradfield. Um, and, and you have to be the high man on a player if you want to get him in the draft. So I, I think I'd probably agree with you on that one. All right. So I lied. One more question. Yeah, no worries. With the draft taking place across all-star weekend, does that really hinder the way organizations go about approaching the trade deadline? Are they not necessarily diving too deeply into maybe, you know, moving talent prior to the draft because they're so fixated on that, you know, that schedule and the draft strategy there. What's your opinion on the timing of the draft and how it maybe impacts the trade deadline? Well, I know for a fact that it makes it more difficult for organizations to just balance everything they're doing because when the the draft was initially moved back, that was the biggest concern that everyone in baseball operations was, was laying out. It was like, okay, we have so much happening in a small window of time. Like, you have to focus on the draft. You have to have a lot. So it just pushes it pushes things that you're able to do back. You can't really prioritize um, the same way that you could in the past. I think the organizations who do things the best are probably going to be able to juggle them well. And just the communication between departments and balancing your looks. Uh, it really probably just depends on how involved the people who are making decisions for you on the draft side are also in decision-making roles on the kind of professional acquisition side, which is interlinked in every organization. But I think there are varying degrees of separation there that can make it trickier depending on, on just how how your front office is outfitted. Um, uh, I don't think there's anything but like more logistical issues it creates. However, like if it was a month earlier, it would simply be easier for teams to focus on one 
easily move to the next one with a little bit of breathing room. So it, it definitely impacts teams. Right. Just curious, James, you got anything? No, I mean, I know like, you know, like the, the Cade Horton thing happened last year and maybe, you know, maybe Tanner Witt ends up being similar this time, but I'd, I'd still rather it be in June. I don't, I don't really like this still, but it, it is what it is. <laughs> I think that from like, I think tying it to the All-Star game is good for viewership of the draft, which was obviously probably the biggest reason for doing it. I also think having the draft happen after the College World Series is good for the players. I think for the players themselves and for fans of the draft, it's good. I think for everyone who works on the draft, on the team side, on the agent side, on the media side, it's more of a headache. So it just, it depends on like, if you think the additional eyeballs on the draft is more positive for the sport, I'm inclined to agree that that it is better. So I'll live with the negatives, but there's no doubt that it's trickier for me this time of year covering the draft and also trying to juggle 2024 uh, showcase circuit stuff that's starting up now. There's an overlap in draft classes that we we used to not have to deal with, which makes it trickier. But you know, I think I think the draft being more fun and more appealing to casual baseball fans will only create more diehards. So hopefully, hopefully the the pros are worth all the cons we have to deal with with it. Yeah, and that's such a good point about the players, and I I often forget about that. It's like. You know, in the past, you draft and you're still competing for an SEC championship and you got mm-hmm. all this different psyche going on with, you know, obviously. But that's really well said. Really appreciate everything that you do, not only for us, you know, taking the time to talk to us. But, man, all the work at Baseball America. Baseball fans need to subscribe to Baseball America. Uh, they're the best. Carlos, thank you. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. This was a lot of fun and uh, excited to see what happens this year in the draft. Oh, we'll be paying attention. The draft is coming up uh, July 9th through the 11th is All-Star Weekend. We're going to have a draft show as well. Are you doing anything fun, specific, live, or anything like that for the draft? Uh, I'll be on the broadcast for day one of the draft, like usual. Uh, yeah, so pre- pretty much normal normal schedule for me on the draft. MLB Network, right? Yes, sir. All right, that's Carlos Colazzo, Baseball America, and the Future Projection Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin, and for James Fox, as well as Carlos Colazzo, this is the Future Sox Podcast. Man, we release episodes every Tuesday. I hope this one, if you haven't been subscribed, uh, motivated you to click that button because uh, we really appreciate the support, and it helps us do this weekly. Every Tuesday, we drop episodes. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks so much for listening.